This episode is dedicated to Ryan Grochkowski and Tessa Lalonde for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. Permission to board your brains. It's <laughs> Southpaw Deep Space Nine. All right. Well, that intro gets approval from my co-host. Uh, I'll introduce myself first. I'm Angel Marti. I'm Sam. You've probably heard a lot of me if you've been following this uh, podcast network already. Yes, this is the newest entry into the cosmos of the Southpaw Network. What is Southpaw Deep Space Nine? Well, are you a fight nerd who's looking to become more of just a regular nerd? Uh, <laughs> Sam, I believe this podcast was uh, your idea originally. Can you can you uh, describe to our audience how you came up with this idea? Yeah. So how did how did it start? Because it actually started a while back. I think it was just like since I started podcasting, like a year or so of people mentioning, you know, on social media. You know, when I talked about all the different niches that Southpaw covers, they would mention that Star Trek is another vector for a lot of lefties. Oh, yeah. And then in particular, Deep Space Nine. I mean, if you're if you're in any kind of online lefty spaces, it's it's a hack joke to talk about how Star Trek represents the fully automated luxury communist uh, uh, future that we uh, all strive for. And uh even before I discovered Southpaw, I was aware that there was a uh, big overlap in like lefty Twitter, wrestling fan Twitter, and and Star Trek fan Twitter, uh, <laughs> and I fall into all three of those demographics. And so I, it it was nice to be given a chance to uh, bring finally that third uh, circle of the Venn diagram into Southpaw. You've checked off all the boxes, all the nerdy boxes. We are now complete, but yeah, you, you, you were. I guess, I guess, you finally just caved in to to peer pressure because in the <laughs> Southpaw Discord, you posted, "Does anybody want to do a podcast where we watch Star Trek: Deep Space Nine together?" And I believe that very week uh, that you had posted that, I think I had just come back uh-huh. or was on my way to Star Trek: Las Vegas, and. Uh, I was just like, um, I just blew a bunch of money to satisfy my Star Trek fandom. So I think uh, I'm the most qualified person in this Discord space to be your co-host. And even looking at the pictures you took there, I could tell you were very committed. Oh, yeah. No, nobody, uh, no casual fan spends 75 bucks on a foam rubber uh, Klingon forehead <laughs> and a $200 steel bat left, which I'm very proud of. And I still have displayed on the on top of my kitchen cabinet. Because it's the only place where it would fit. I can't even say it's peer pressure. I think a lot of people listening right now, maybe they're listening to this and watching the show along with us because like me, they were lost when they would see these kind of 
Star Trek, not only Star Trek, but in particular, Deep Space Nine memes and jokes, and you just weren't getting it. And so, like many of us on the left, you end up watching some anime or some TV show or Deep Space Nine just to get the jokes. Yeah, and it is interesting because I feel like I have met an sort of a foreign species to me, a, a, a strange civilization of people who aren't already like deeply culturally aware of Star Trek, or at the very least, they're aware of it, but they're not as knowledgeable about it. So I guess to for my full bona fides, I have been a Star Trek fan, like most of my adult life, even before I was fully politically radicalized. I mean, Wednesday night used to be my favorite night of the week when I was in middle school, because uh, I'm mostly like my mom was the main vector for Star Trek fandom. And Wednesday night was sort of our special bonding night, because that would be when you would get um, a new episode of Babylon 5 at 6 on TNT, uh, then on UPN starting at, I believe it was uh, 8 o'clock was Voyager, and then 9 o'clock was Deep Space Nine. Mm, so there was some overlap between the two shows. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, we'll go into this later. But but yeah, Deep Space Nine and Voyager were on at the same time for a good chunk of both of their both of their existences. And it was, it was basically like, uh, when deep space nine ended, uh, around the year 2000, that was like the only time that was like the first time that there wasn't at least two star Trek shows on at the same time since, since, uh, the beginning of deep space nine, because deep space nine was on during the end of the next generation. And then, uh, during the beginning of Voyager. That explains the confusion a lot of people have where they combine the two shows into one show. That is true. Even like watching this, I was like, wait, where's the the other woman? Where's the other cat? <laughs> <laughs> there, yeah, I mean, there, there is sort of, uh, there are various eras of the Star Trek timeline, I think that like, as far as like creative blocks of like aesthetically and creatively similar chunks of media, which is like you have the original series era, which was when it was on TV from 1966 to 1969. That's the era with Kirk and Spock. That's very short. Yeah. No, the, 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 I guess, uh, yeah, again, I, I guess not everybody's familiar with the, with the expansive nature of uh, the whole 55-year history of the franchise. Star Trek was uh, one of the first major shows that was like not that popular in its time and then through cult followings gained like a larger prominence in, in, in the greater pop culture sphere through the sheer force of that dedication. Like Star Trek, Star Trek basically invented the, the science fiction convention because, you know, Star Trek was, uh, it was on the air from 66 to 69, three seasons. It was almost canceled after its second season. And that's, that's when it was saved by a letter writing campaign from fans you know, this was back when you couldn't just tweet. You actually had to take the effort to uh, put pen to paper. So, like, people really loved the show. And then, you know, after, at, after around the third season, enough of a, like, a, a, a fan base, like, sort of coalesced that there started to be these in-person uh, conventions. And there was an animated series that was, I believe it was, 72 to 73 but that one's always been sort of like a or was it 70 
72 to 74. The animated series was basically a continuation of the original series, but it was always until very recently in the Paramount Plus era treated, it was sort of like semi-ignored and like the canonicity of it uh, sort of was put into question after like, I'm making air quotes, proper live action sequels were made. But then, but then I think Star Trek really started to solidify into the franchise that we know it today when uh, the movies started being made, which the first one was in 1979. That was Star Trek, the motion picture. And then uh, there were four more. Uh, the, there, there was four more. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. Uh, that came out in 1986. And then it was in 1987 that we finally got the, the, fir- the first sequel television series, which was Star Trek The Next Generation, which ran from 1987 to 1994. Were the movies initially pop- like I know number two, Wrath of Khan was a huge hit and it's almost like it has a special place not just in star trek world but in in cinematic history it was it's known as having one of the best villains and all that oh yeah wrath of wrath of khan is is like one of the few star trek movies that i would like be safe saying in front of non-star trek fans that it's legitimately a good movie but what about the first movie was that popular Uh, yes to answer your question short short question answer the question yes it was um but so the long answer is that you know as as much as we try to pick um we try to like depict Star Trek and Star Wars fandom as like being like opposing factions really Star Trek owes a lot to Star Wars and also 2001 a Space Odyssey because so the reason so there had been some attempts to do another star trek live action show like in the 70s there was like uh there was one there was an attempt called star trek phase two that was gonna be a live action tv series bringing back kirk and the crew and it like almost went to principal photography on the pilot but then it got cut because like you know there uh, again it, it after the series cancellation in 1969 there was like a grow like there the tapes tapes got traded and circulated and 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 these fan conventions happened that that actually allowed the popularity of the series to grow sort of post-mortem and so there was a rising demand for star trek to come back in some capacity or another but paramount uh was loath to be convinced of like how it should be done because there was different talks about maybe doing tv movies and then doing uh, another TV series, and then a motion picture, and what really, what really set uh, things in motion was Star Wars coming out in 1977, and like making blockbuster science fiction movies like the thing for studios to do, because uh, I'm like you know you had 2001: A Space Odyssey, you had Star Wars, and then Paramount Pictures goes, we need a space movie. Do we have a space franchise? We've got Star Trek. Let's make a Star Trek movie. And so, so it, it really, uh, Star Trek benefited from just being in the right place at the right time when it was ready for science fiction to take this kind of front and center position in the pop culture consciousness that it hadn't, that it really hadn't previously. Because, you know, Star Trek in, when it was on TV in the 60s was unique in that it was not like for, kids solely it was like more of an adult cerebral kind of thing but you know uh i think i think it's safe to say you know in the large scope of pop culture history that star wars sort of made like 
sci-fi fantasy stuff like very much like mainstream popular entertainment so it it really did set a table for star trek to you know assume the place that it has now as like okay within the larger sphere of sci-fi fantasy entertainment that is seen as like a legitimate mainstream uh genre now you have like the more cerebral adult oriented star trek to fill that niche so so yeah star trek uh you know in retrospect it's not the best of the star trek films but it did do well you know box office wise and it was popular enough that then you know then the 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 series of films uh um you know proceeded from there and they were all very successful enough that you know that basically star trek the next generation wouldn't have happened if the movies didn't do well i've noticed on tv and even cable oftentimes they'll start with wrath of khan so for a long time i thought that was the first movie yeah here's the thing so the the first movie is number one it's basically a giant episode of the tv show because the script is based on a a a script that was originally written for star trek phase two called uh i think the original script was called in thy image which was about you know uh uh um an AI that had like game sentience and was trying to look for its creator, but not realizing that its creator was a human. And then that's basically what happens in the first, in the first motion picture with V'ger, um, who's like the, the satellite Voyager six, because the movie came out not too long after Voyager two was launched and, you know, it becomes sentient when, uh, and then tries to search for the creator. Uh, and then it realizes that the creator is, uh, you know, are, are humans. Uh, so, and also, if you watch the movie, again, retros- you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. If you watch the movie in retrospect, it very much tries to be like 2001, because there's a lot, like, especially, like, it, there's, there's a running joke in, um, in Star Trek fandom where the motion picture is sometimes referred to as Star Trek the slow motion picture or Star Trek the motion sickness. Because there are a lot of very long panning shots of just the ships, specifically the Enterprise. You know, there's a great, you know, it's like if if you love Jerry Goldsmith's, you know, symphonic scores for Star Trek, I mean, obviously there, you know, you appreciate the moment where, you know, the Captain Kirk is getting to see the new refitted Enterprise for the first time. And you hear the, but it's like, if you're not already invested, if if you're not into that, you're just like, okay, I get it. I see the ship. You can stop showing me the ship. (laughs) So also it ended up coming in way over budget uh, uh, because of like, just how very elaborate um, the, uh, uh, just special effects ended up being. And so Star Trek two, number one, uh, they hired in, uh, this guy, Nicholas Meyer to be the writer who, uh, I think really made some of the best, uh, changes, I think to the franchise during his tenure, working on a lot of the early TOS era movies. And then he eventually, he actually ended up returning to the series as a consultant for the first uh, season of discovery in 2016, but that comes later. But, uh, Nicholas Meyer was a, uh, he wasn't already a fan, but he was, uh, he like was a novelist. He had written a bunch of, he, I think he had like written some of like the only Sherlock Holmes sequels that were like officially approved by Conan Doyle's estate. Like he was a mystery writer and he'd also was a fan of the Horatio Hornblower series of novels, which was one of the original inspirations for, um, 
the Captain Kirk character and a lot of the structure of Star Trek, but when Gene Rodberry originally conceived the show, Horatio Hornblower is just it's it's a series of uh, novels set like during like the golden age of like sort of Moby Dick era, like you know late late nineteenth century, uh, early like golden age of naval of of uh, British uh, naval navigation. So it's like yeah, Star Trek's a very naval show. You know, it's like it's it's very much like uh, a you know the original series is very much like I am on a ship, you know, sailing like, you know, the Starfleet is very much structured in its rank, like a Navy. And the, a lot of the protocols, uh, that the officers follow are taken from the Navy. And, and, um, which I like growing up when I was younger, I was like, wait a second, shouldn't like space stuff be more like the air force or whatever. But like when you learn that a lot of like the early creative inspirations to Gene Roddenberry were like Naval tales, it all makes sense. And, and also we'll get into this later, but I think also sort of is like the germination of some of the little bit of the colonial aspects that still leak into the ethos and, 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 uh, ideas of Star Trek that still manifest in later shows and get, and sometimes get reflected on and criticized, uh, in Deep Space Nine. But, uh, so Nicholas Meyer, when he started on Wrath of Khan, uh, he was challenged to make a movie, you know, that would come in under budget. So, uh, there were a bunch of stock footage that was reused, um, like shots of the Enterprise and stuff that were reused from the motion picture. A lot of set, like there were no new sets constructed. Uh, all, uh, they were able to reuse a bunch of sets and models. And then he, you know, he was able to, um, you know, construct this very uh, uh, efficient, uh, compact narrative that that drew upon uh, a previous episode of the original series, Space Seed, which which introduce the character of Khan Noonien Singh. So Nicholas Meyer comes in, he like makes these changes. And, and so Wrath of Khan uh, is just a very, it also, it also has like a lot of really good introductions to the characters and the premise of like the world of Star Trek that you really can skip the motion picture if you just want to jump right into watching like the, the movies. Like you don't really miss anything if you start watching with Wrath of Khan. But with Next Generation, isn't it also like during that era where you could launch a show, not on network, but syndicated? Yes. The original series was a network show, but Next Generation was a syndicated show, which I don't even think that exists anymore. That Because of so many different cable channels and, and streaming outlets, there's no more syndicated. So can you explain what that was and how uh, the Next Generation got a second life? Yeah, the Next Generation, I, I think it's because one of the things that did help the original series continue to build the uh, fandom that it had even after cancellation was syndication. The fact that like after it was canceled, a lot of the, sh- a lot of the episodes were rerun in syndication and that's what helped uh, expose a lot of fans to the show. So they ended up when they created the next generation, they decided they were going to go for like a first run syndication model to get that as much of like a uh, uh, a spread out to as many fans as possible. And I think that paid off because I think a lot of people sort of consider Star Trek, the next generation to be like their, their quote, their unquote Trek, at least of like, you know, my, our generational cohort. And for people who are too young, can you explain what syndication means? Syndication is just when instead of, uh, instead of, um, 
a show being produced specifically for broadcast on one single network. You had a deal with, uh, you had like you like a network would have like syndication partners, like basically local channel affiliates that you would have a deal to distribute the show to X, Y, Z, you know, local affiliates. So that way you could have your, uh, you know, show on in a bunch of different markets because, you know, television before the days of like, you know, all these media consolidated super magnates was still sort of under the a little bit more local control in certain areas. I guess later on, Baywatch was the other hit that came from syndication, but usually you didn't have a hit show from syndication. You just were trying to just survive and get reruns. Yeah, but I mean, I think I think because at this point, Star Trek had sort of just proven itself as like a legitimate money-making franchise. It was now in a position in 1987 where it could afford to, you know, Gene Roddenberry was in a position where he could say like, hey, I want to do it this way. And people would say like, yeah, sure, we don't, you know, we can do this. So unlike other syndicated shows, this show actually had a pretty good budget then. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, it, you can, the first two seasons of, of, of the next generation uh, are very, are a little bit more dated just because it's like there was slightly lower production values, but then like, yeah, especially after, um, after the third season, it definitely like gets a much better uh, budget going towards it. Yeah, so uh, I guess we sh- that should go that that can go into introducing Deep Space Nine, like just in general that show, and why we're doing this show about this. So uh, this podcast about that show, as opposed to say Next Generation or something else. So the Next Generation ran for uh, seven seasons, like I said, and after uh, this show began on uh, in 1993, which was during the next generation sixth season. So the next generation was already sort of beginning to wind down. By the way, um, uh, Gene Roddenberry, who was the creator of the original series of Star Trek and sort of like the overseer of the entire franchise, you know, up until uh, uh, a certain point, uh, he died in 1991, uh, which was like during before the third season of the next generation. So after that, uh, the series was sort of taken over by this guy, Rick Berman. Uh, who uh, we'll get into all the things wrong with Berman over the course (laughs) of this podcast. But I mean, he was the guy that Paramount decided to pick as, as the uh, overseer after Gene died. And so Rick Berman and another one of the producers uh, who had worked on uh, the next generation, Michael Piller, you know, they were deciding what to do, um, to sort of keep the franchise going because now, you know, um, when the next generation was on, uh, the final original series movie, uh, the star Trek six, the undiscovered country, uh, came out in 1991 and they were not going to do any more movies with that crew. And they were getting ready to produce, um, uh, the first next generation movie, which was generations, uh, that was released in 1994. Um, and, so Deep Space Nine is unique in that they decided with this show, even though the, sh- the franchise has Trek in the name, they were going to do a show that was set on a space station instead of a unexploring ship. So instead of you going to them, this time they're coming to you. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, again, if we want to uh, 
So, so let's say let's, uh, we have the original series was pitched to NBC as a quote wagon train to the stars and wagon train is the name of a, of an old Western show about a wagon train going through the American West. And, uh, so instead of having a show be about the wagon train, you have a show about a fort. So having it, and, and a lot of fans were like, why aren't you having it on a ship? That's what Star Trek is about. But I think what, one of the things that makes the setting of Deep Space Nine so unique is that because you have this static setting, you, you know, instead of having it be like a planet of the week, you have, you have the, sp- the time to see how relationships between all these different cultures that interact at this one meeting place, uh, how those relationships evolve, what kind of politics are involved, like what kind of disputes break out. You really have the chance to, instead of just the, what brings you in being like, Oh, what next, what crazy premise is going to happen. You're, you get a chance to actually see, uh, more character development and change and, Number one, at the same time, Babylon Five was doing a lot of these things, and arguably, <laughs> arguably better. But I'll, you know, well, which came out first? Then they came out around the same time, and there's some, there's some credence to the idea that possibly that that Paramount Studios had like been aware because like J. Michael Straczynski, the creator of Babylon Five, had pitched the idea to Paramount, and they passed because they didn't want to do another like a uh, sci-fi franchise when they already had Star Trek, and that they were somebody was aware of the idea of a space station show when when they were like coming up with uh, Deep Space Nine. But it's like one of those things where like JMS, uh, that's what Babylon Five fans call him, uh, you know, was just like you know, it's the sh- we, I was able to make my show, so and my show's my show, so I'm not gonna like harp on it even though even though like there could be arguments one way or the other so it's it's one of those things that's just like there are a lot of it is like too convenient to just say no there's no way there was like any influence or or like possible plagiarizing but uh, but also like the directly afflicted parties you know don't have decided to let the issue rest but yeah no both babylon 5 first its pilot uh, TV movie w- debuted like late 92 and then the first season started in 93 and it ran from for five years from 93 to 98 and it was it was a very different show just in its execution but but to go back to Deep Space Nine what both of those sh- shows shared was that like when you have like a show set around a place you can have this sort of nucleus where you can have all these different intersecting plot lines and different kind of character arcs happening that that the audience can use like the location as like their anchor point to be able to uh, take all of it in, and and I think this the shift from shows that were very much like Planet of the Week or like you know Monster of the Week uh, that were sort of de rigueur in the in the like you know eighties and and early nineties. I think Deep Space Nine is definitely part of the shift uh, of like storytelling style uh, that sort of presages like what's popular now, which is like most most drama shows tend to be like serialized, long story arcs. I mean, also part of that is it's it's easier to do that kind of storytelling when you have stuff distributed where you know it's like on streaming platforms where if you didn't see episode two, you can go back and watch episode two right then. You know, it was, it is harder. I I understand why, 
you know, earlier when people couldn't like go back and catch what they missed, it was, there was a lot more reticence on the part of TV networks and, and producers of doing, you know, uh, storylines that required you to, to see things, see what was going on every week. But Deep Space Nine was one of those shows that started taking that risk. Uh, and like, you know, the first few seasons are more, you know, one-offs, but then as we get into later seasons, we'll see like the Dominion War developing and, and, uh, it is, it is really interesting to see how, uh, Deep Space Nine sort of, again, like reflects the general shift in, style for hour-long dramatic tv shows that were going on at the time so this series takes place in the same timeline as the next generation right yes as a recap for anybody who might not be aware the original series takes place during the 23rd century uh and then the next generation is supposed to take place uh 75 years after the events of the original series so it's in the 24th century and basically every every show after the next generation up until the prequel series enterprise was set in the 24th century which so the like so TNG Deep Space 9 and Voyager sort of collectively referred to as like the TNG era you know when describing like you know stories set in a particular fray you know um era of the Star Trek universe like people might talk about like TOS, they might talk about like Enterprise. Enterprise is a prequel series that takes place in the 22nd century. So you might like say if you're doing like a Star Trek role playing game, you might say like, okay, this is set during, you know, TNG era or TOS era or Enterprise era or whatever. Here's the thing, because the next generation at the time was still very much like, you know, uh, episodic, you know, one offs and Deep Space Nine was going in the direction of more overarching things. Also, because of a conscious choice to, like, make them separate shows, the events on TNG rarely affected Deep Space Nine and, and uh, vice versa. And, and then also, uh, the same thing would happen with Voyager, and that's, that's kind of why they deliberately set Voyager in a completely different quadrant of the galaxy, uh, because they wanted to make sure that, you know, even though they were all set uh, you know, within the same franchise that they all had like their own sort of character and differences. So, so there's very apart. There are, there are some occasional crossover episodes, but like sometimes there will be something, there will be a seed for something that is set in TNG that is then built in deep space nine. Uh, but like, there's no, like, it's not like, you know, in Marvel comics where it's like Spider-Man will reference something that happened in Thor, you know, two months ago uh that was always my least favorite part about like uh uh marvel comics when i was a kid because it's like spider-man would be like oh i remember when you beat you know the abomination and there'd be a little asterisk that says like see thor 38 you know and i'm like i'm reading spider-man right now i don't want to go but again it's easier to do these do those kinds of things online when you can just like click a link and it'll take you right there um, so, yeah, so they didn't do that with these shows. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash 
So are any of the characters from Deep Space Nine, have they previously appeared in The Next Generation or are are they all new characters? At the beginning of the series, you do have Miles O'Brien, who was previously a transporter chief on the Enterprise D. He comes to uh, Deep Space Nine to become the chief engineer. And he did like, you know, he was a recurring character on um, Deep Space Nine. I'm sorry, on The Next Generation. But like he wasn't like in the main credits. He was very much a small role. And this was basically like moving Miles O'Brien to uh, uh, Deep Space Nine was basically like the. Um, it's like a pro wrestling monster push. Yeah, no, they were. Yeah, they were. They were calling him up to the big time. They were basically saying, like, we love this actor call Meanie and we want to, like, give him more of a role with more meat. And so they decided to to make him a main uh, character on the spinoff show. And and he becomes uh, very much uh, even more lovable character in my mind. I would say even in The Next Generation, which I have seen he kind of had this buildup where he was kind of an extra at the beginning. Yeah. And then over time, he became like this uh, recurring character. And Yeah, they, they ended up giving him a little bit of a personality enough that then they were like, oh, we have this character. We can just uh, build, build upon it uh, in this new show. I think, they, I, think, I think they wanted to have like from the beginning a character that was from the next generation that could be that could like provide that continuity but i think they wanted to have like somebody who they could afford to take off of the enterprise especially because the next generation was still happening you know during the first couple of seasons they wanted somebody that they could that that was like familiar enough but like sort of expendable enough in terms of tng that they could move over so that's why they went with o'brien Let's just speak specifically about this first episode. The people we're going to meet in this first episode, is he the only one that's ever appeared in any of the other uh, Next Generation episodes? Not about, not, not the actors. Um, so, so one of the lovely things about Deep Space Nine is that there are multiple characters, uh, main characters that were played by people who had previous um, appearances as other characters on The Next Generation. Oh, no wonder some of them look familiar. Yeah. Yeah, no. Um, like we'll meet like Quark, the uh the bar the Ferengi bar owner played by Armin Armin uh I believe it's Scheimerman. Um uh he previously played a different Ferengi character on an episode of, of uh The Next Generation. Uh, okay. Um uh I believe I believe he played a character in like the first ever episode that featured Ferengi. Um and then uh Gul Dukat is played by Mark Alamo, who had similarly played uh, a Cardassian named Golmaset in one of the first TNG episodes that introduced the Cardassians. And going back to your question about like, um, th- or like going back to the discussion of things that like introduced that were introduced in one show and then paid off in another. Deep Space, uh, the Next Generation does sort of introduce uh, two races that become sort of central to Deep Space Nine, which is uh, that weren't in previous versions of of uh, Star Trek, which were the Cardassians and the Bajorans. Um, uh, so for people who don't know, I mean, one of the challenges of the next generation was how do we come up with uh, new villains that aren't just rehashing the same ones that we knew from the first Star Trek. So the Klingons were, you know, one of the trademark villains of the original series, but of course with the character of officer Worf in the next generation, they were no longer an enemy. They were part of the, the feder. Uh, well, they weren't part of the Federation, but they were allies now because Gene Rodberry wanted to show that even in the future, you know, enemies can become allies. So we couldn't have the Federation. Um, uh, so we couldn't have the Klingons as enemies. So 
uh, let's they originally tried to make the Ferengi the uh, main villains, uh, but you know if if any of you have ever seen the first episode uh, where Ferengi appear in the Next Generation, they're very silly. Uh, they hiss like cats, um, and uh, they were just like, no, they're too silly. Um, eventually, eventually the Borg si- start to like become like the main uh, big bads, but then another species that they created that sort of became uh, uh, credible vil- recurring villains were the Cardassians, and uh, and then you have the Bajorans, which uh, were originally introduced via a, ca- a recurring character on the Next Generation named Ensign Roe, and actually. Um, uh, Ensign Roloren, who uh, there, you know, is sort of this uh, hot shot, hot tempered uh, former resistance fighter. And uh, that reminds me, actually, there were some, there was one part that was on Deep Space Nine that was intended to be a recurring character from the next generation, but was, but was then replaced, which was the character of Kira Norris on Deep Space Nine, who is like the Bajoran delegate. Uh, the sort of Bajoran crew me- crew member uh, on Deep Space Nine was originally supposed to be Ensign Ro- was supposed to be Ro Loren in a new role, but Michelle Forbes didn't want to do another Trek show, so that so they created the character of uh, Kira to replace that character. But um, but but yeah, they were they originally I guess they wanted a, a couple of more characters to give that continuity with the Next Generation. So then we have this first episode, which was a, a TV movie. Yeah, two-parter. Uh, two, uh, I mean, uh, I'm going to just say up top, I feel, and again, I've watched every pilot episode of every Trek show, I feel like it's still one of the best pilots uh, in Star Trek. It's just a tremendous episode. So it's called Emissary. So what's happening in this episode with Picard and the Borg, and how does this relate to Benjamin Sisko, and where are we starting with the show? Yeah, so one of the things I love about the show is be- it, it starts off being like, okay, you know what? This is a this is a sequel Trek show. We, you know, Star Trek: The Next Generation is already on TV. We don't need to do any of like the heavy, like introductory work of the world of the show. We're going to start in the middle of the action in media res, and so we start with what is known as the Battle of Wolf Three Five Nine, which is a battle between uh, a Borg cube fleet and uh, Starfleet vessels. And so what, what's, what's unique about this is if you've watched The Next Generation, you'll know that uh, the third season finale, which then was a two-parter that started the fourth season, was, a, was an episode called The Best of Both Worlds. And that was an episode where Jean-Luc Picard was assimilated by the Borg, and he becomes uh, this figure called Locutus of Borg, who's sort of like a spokesman and slash sort of like the herald, the, gala- the silver surfer to the Borg uh, hives Galactus. Um, and so this battle as explained, there is a little bit of an opening crawl just to give you like, you know, the bare bones details of the fact that there was this battle that took place while Picard was assimilated by the Borg. And because the Borg had access to all of Picard's Starfleet knowledge during his assimilation, uh, the, the, the fleet is decimated. And one of the ships in the Starfleet, um, uh, deployment fighting in Battle of Wolf, uh, Wolf Three Five Nine is the the USS Saratoga. Uh, one of the crew members being, I think he's the first officer, is uh, Commander Benjamin Sisko. And so we see events during this battle happen from the perspective of Commander Sisko. 
uh, we first see that there's a Vulcan captain, which is uh, which is a little fun uh, image to see on a Starfleet ship. But we quickly see that during the flight, during the fight, the captain dies. Uh, the crew has to abandon ship, and Cisco has to uh, go find his wife and son uh, and make sure that they're they're abandoning ship. Which this is actually a really a good image to focus on to sort of draw the one of the sort of differences between the next generation and deep space nine is so one of the things you always notice about um the next generation is that there's families on board the enterprise there's children um you know it's like definitely like a lot of people will call the enterprise d like the floating space hotel because everything's very comfortable and very clean and you know there's stuff for kids to do and and sort of when the Borg enter the um, the Star Trek universe, it sort of signifies a little bit of a loss of innocence uh, for the Federation in a sense where it's like there becomes more of a technological shift and a, de- and a ship design shift. I'm talking in-universe, of course, uh, towards like, okay, all of our ships have to be equipped to be able to deal with the Borg and like survive conflicts with you know the borg or other equally advanced species so you'll notice like after deep space nine you don't really see families on starfleet ships anymore so i think this is kind of an interesting thing to note that this this show opens with a dude who has a family on board of a ship and he has to see that his wife is a casualty of this battle we see jennifer is uh, his wife jennifer is killed uh he she's trapped under some rubble and he has to take his young son jake onto the escape pod and watch as the ship blows up with his wife's body on board so that's how we open the show which is like <laughs> it's it's again it it's a really it, it's really great to me you know both watching it as a trek fan and then understanding the context of like you know this is very stark and sort of grim you know and comparatively violent you know compared to what we might expect from a typical tng episode you know usually it's like you know on the next generation it's like you know uh, if there were children or like you know like wesley crusher would always get saved you know in time you know and there and there would be like there would be deaths, but they didn't feel number one, they'd be like maybe at the end of the episode where you didn't have as much time to like feel the emotional effects of them. And then also they wouldn't feel like so deeply uh, traumatic as it does with, um, with uh, Cisco uh, and Jennifer. And also uh, uh, again, uh, I I don't want to make this so top heavy, but there's, there's so much we learn about, this show and the characters and how they're unique in the Star Trek universe just from this opening scene because so one of the the things that you often see with Kirk and Picard is this idea of like oh being a Starfleet captain means I'll never be able to have room for a family you know Kirk Kirk you know was falling in love with you know so many people you know during his voyages but he was always like there's only room for one woman in my life and her name's Enterprise and you know and Picard's you know our uh gray ace king who very clearly doesn't really have a lot of interest in romantic or sexual attention but has often 
often grapples with the idea of, you know, if he wants to have a family. And of course, that kind of comes to a head in uh, generations where he discovers that, like, you know, now, like, he is the last Picard. Um, but that's for another another discussion. But uh, But we see that here's a guy who's the first officer on a ship, and he not only doesn't see any he doesn't have trouble reconciling his duty and responsibility to Starfleet with family life. He, in fact, you know, he brings his family with him on, on his missions and he, you know, he does, we don't see, I mean, and I haven't even got to the whole point that, you know, he's black. I mean, yes, we have a black, this is the first black captain that we have as the protagonist of a Star Trek show. And he's a single father and he's present for his kids. So again, so much like is just pumped right into like the the opening the cold open of this pilot that it just like is so uh, uh, it like even now you know like and 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 I've seen this so many times before just talking about it now I just feel genuinely impressed with the achievement of this episode as far as like what it did in terms of being different from what was on most TV at the time, and also just being different from what Trek had been doing up to that point. We have a show that we have right now, like just if you're watching this episode, before you even like get to the main title sequence, you're like, this is a Star Trek show where we've got uh, like black single dad. Uh, then you've got like like serious, like long lasting contemplation of the long lasting effects of like death and trauma. <laughs> and we've got like serious war, like like shit is going down on like like welcome to deep, deep Star Trek Deep Space Nine. This is the show where shit goes down. So um, I'm watching this with fresh eyes. I think what I'm bringing to this is uh, that I'm not watching it from the Star Trek canon which might give a different perspective. I, I'm familiar with, you know, a little bit with The Next Generation and the original series, right? I think because it was so short, I think a lot of people ended up just watching the whole thing, maybe not in sequence, but in uh, just through reruns, right? Oh, yeah, that was like one of the first things I did when pandemic started was just, all right, I'm going to binge through all three seasons of the original series. <laughs> so one of the things I, I noticed with, not just with this show, but right after that scene, I think early in the episode, we see... Cisco with his son Jake in the holodeck. And from my eyes, having done, you know, a lot of political topics and analysis for this podcast network anyway, you know, it it probably reads different for me because what I see here is a continuation of a convention that I've seen in Star Trek period. The original series didn't have a holodeck, right? This is right. This started with the next generation, right? Yeah. So throughout the next generation, the convention that started there was to use the holodeck to visit a place in the American past. And that continued in the first scene of the holodeck in this, where it's this idyllic American past. So it's interesting to me that despite being a future without borders, it's still very US-centric. And I don't know if this is like an unconscious bias uh, of the, the writers, but it's still mythologizing the American past. I mean, even later on, we we have a baseball scene, but it's like pre uh, you know crossing of the color lines where it was like all white racist baseball, and then these two, and there's no like real commentary about it. But they're the only two black people there. Oh oh, we we will get some really good explicit racial commentary in Deep Space Nine later on, just so you know. But but this is still a, a trenchant observation of how it's treated in the non explicitly racial episodes. Yeah, that one seemed more intentional, whereas with the fishing scene and other scenes. I've seen 
throughout the the series about how the holodeck has been used, not this series, but Next Generation, it is this unconscious thing of, of course, you would go to the Wild West, or of course, you would go to some Victorian time or Europe or whatever, right? It is this very like Eurocentric, uh, American-centric thing. I think, I think, you know what, you, you just paid off what I was noting back when we were talking about you know, Star Trek originally being inspired by, you know, Horatio Hornblower and Wagon Train and stuff is that like, yeah, I mean, Star Trek was always like an American TV show that tried to be progressive in like adding an international outlook. But like, yeah, the shows were always ultimately American centric. The captain, like, you know, Kirk was the Captain Kirk was an American. He was born in Iowa. Like, you know, he, uh, like there is an episode of the original series that, uh, like has him like reciting the entire pledge of allegiance by, by heart. I mean, that episode's, there's a bizarre justification for it. Um, but you know, it was, it was like one of the risky things about the next generation was that, you know, like you had, uh, the captain was, uh, French and he was played by an Englishman. But like, you know, you had Riker there who was like the, you know, uh, he was from Alaska. So again, like, you know, with a very like rugged outdoorsy background and very much like bringing the American swagger, you know, at the uh, at at the, uh, you know, leadership position. And and yeah, Sis- Cisco is he's American from Louisiana. Uh, so, uh, oh, you'll also that also will that also adds a nice little bit of a. Uh, pun not intended but i'll go with it color to his character you know the louisiana background and and it comes up in different places but but you know you're, you're spot on in that they're absolutely i mean it's still it's still you know an american show made primarily for an american audience and and reflects that you know yeah even the language right i mean obviously since it's for american viewers they're gonna everybody's gonna be speaking english but it's a very refined english right it's like in the future yeah they do they do refer to they were they talk about speaking federation standard which is you know in other shows but like in other star trek shows but i think it is there they've always been sort of like muddled ideas of like okay is everybody speaking their native language and being processed through the universal translator or does everybody learn to speak you know um so but Again, that's because it, it's like there's a it's hard to come up with a an in-universe explanation for this sort of attitude that, yeah, like English is the default. Yeah. And I'm wondering, you know, this is uh, doing a little bit of uh, analysis of the writers themselves, right, of Star Trek writers. But, um, you know, especially the the original series, I think it was a very pro-American show, even though it was in space. And the next generation tried to move further away. And this show seems to try to move even further away. But there is this unconscious thing of like, you know, elitism equals like a certain type of English. English should sound a certain way, right? Which I think that was an unconscious choice where, you know, reflects maybe the the writer's uh, own biases. The th- yeah, I mean, because also, I mean, also that Star Trek definitely has a lot of its inspiration in the theater and a lot of like and a lot of a lot of uh, uh, Star Trek actors have a lot of history before and after Trek of doing uh, Shakespeare and uh, and like, uh, you know, a lot of classical theater like uh, Shatner himself like was a uh, was a had had, I believe. I believe he had like toured extensively with like the Canadian Shakespeare company before doing Trek, uh, and then, and then, um, 
Patrick Stewart was like well was like known as a Shakespearean actor before doing Trek to the point that some of his theater compatriots were like thinking that he was sort of sullying himself by doing popular television. And then Avery Brooks, who plays Cisco, actually also had a long a pretty long history of doing Shakespeare, and and now he's like a. Uh, he's an acting teacher at, at a university, but I forgot if he teaches specifically like acting for the stage or, or for tele or for the screen, but he, but he was like a very accomplished stage actor. So, yeah, so, so that's a good, that's a good observation that, yeah, there's a bit of like a flowery stage theater kind of effect to a lot of, a lot of dialogue. Yeah, I think a lot of young people might not remember this stereotype, but there was this idea going back to what you were talking about earlier about what was happening during that time with 2001 and Star Wars, this idea of Brits in space, that in space there's only British people or <laughs> yeah. at least people who seem British adjacent were in space. So <laughs> even speaking to your whole like idea of like Federation English and whatever. To be fair, the Brits were evil in Star Wars, so <laughs> they at least got that part right. But, uh, you know, something like Firefly or later shows where they were still speaking English, but it was supposed to be different in that they weren't speaking this like Victorian English anymore. They were speaking more like casual English. I think I think later sci-fi, not to give everything a credit to Star Trek, but I think a lot of later sci-fi sort of noticed that kind of like linguistic and cultural homogeneity uh, in shows like Trek and then sort of consciously tried to. Uh, do something a little bit more realistic and diverse, like you know, Firefly is a great example, and then The Expanse really, you know, really does does that incredibly. Uh, for anybody who hasn't seen that show, now going back to the show, what's the relationship with the Cardassians and Bajorans? Because this also seems like very much to reflect the real world. Like it's, it seemed very much like based on real life of geopolitics. Yeah. So after that very stark violent opening we finally get uh when we get into act one we start to we get introduced to the station of deep space nine so the backdrop against which our story is starting is that the cardassians uh occupied bajor as uh, a, a colony they were colonizers yeah and so this was something that was again i you know was touched upon in uh in uh the next generation that there was like an ongoing bajoran resistance and so at this point in the story uh the resistance finally manages to drive cardassia off of bajor and the federation wants to move in to occupy a position of power and hopefully convince bajor to join the federation uh you know as it and help and sort of help it gain you know its own sovereignty and and build you know and build itself up as an independent world so deep space nine itself is a former cardassian space station that is now going to be occupied and run by starfleet and so we see that when our characters arrive uh you know everything's sort of uh uh ransacked because the cardassians you know on their way out sort of fucked everything up to make it hard for uh starfleet to use all of their technology and we get introduced and we see that one of our uh, returning characters from before is Miles O'Brien, who's now the chief engineer. And of course, because uh, starting the pattern of uh, O'Brien must suffer, which we'll get into later in the show, uh, he's the one tasked with having to uh, fix fucking everything and make <laughs> and try and make the Cardassian technology work with whatever new Federation technology um, uh, they have to install. And then so the sort of... Uh, uh, concession to 
fe- the Federation taking occupying the space station is that we have w- the first officer is going to be Kira Norris, played by Nana Visitor, who's the Bej- Bajoran liaison officer. Obviously, to me, this reads as Cardassians looted uh, Bajor. But does the show, like, or the series for that matter, ever use that type of language of like colonization or imperialism or no yeah no i mean uh there there'll be show there'll be a few episodes in fact in just a couple of episodes there'll be like explicit like um references to like uh bajoran artifacts that were stolen by the cardassians or like the cardassians during the occupation trying to rewrite history to prove that like technology the bajorans invented was actually like introduced by cardassians like you know cardassian like visitors centuries previous like i I mean i think now we're starting to crack into what is like so specifically appealing about the show to leftists is because it does start to very like on its face here like talking about this conflict and the fact when we meet Kira, the fact that he, she doesn't like greet the Federation as liberators, even though this show came on like, you know, years prior to Bush using that language, it was very prescient. Um, we see that Kira does not like necessarily appreciate the Federation's presence because she doesn't want, uh, you know, one occupier to basically re- be replaced by another. And dur- and she like makes explicit, re- there, there's like explicit references to colonization and oppression and like, you know, the sort of language of, of those kinds of conflicts that isn't dealt with uh, in such explicit terms in The Next Generation and previous Trek uh, uh, iterations. So, so this, is, this is definitely a show, like I said, because we're centering around this one particular geographic, I don't, space geographic location, this one particular planet, you know, we really do get to delve more into uh, the politics of continuing cultural and political developments and interactions the way that other pre- that that the actual trekking shows didn't get a chance to do. I think what socialists also like about the show is to something you brought up earlier about being a station. And so that that creates a different dynamic, right? Because like you said, instead of a wagon going to different places, it's it's these different people coming to you. But what that also does is from a decolonization standpoint, right? It's instead of the previous shows where it was object subject, right? Where it was like these subjects who have subjectivity going and observing these objects because you're at a station and they're residents here and they're visiting you. It's more of a subject subject dynamic yeah absolutely so then people or these different species or they get more fleshed out they're not they're no longer flat even like with the ferengi who are just like this one-dimensional joke they actually become humanized we finally get a show where these alien species start to get humanized no absolutely uh you know and so after we are introduced to kira we are then introduced to um we're introduced to uh quark and and nog who's a uh, Quark's nephew, they're Ferengi, uh, you know, and we sort of, you know, already see that, you know, uh, Quark uh, was a bar operator during the occupation and could have stayed, uh, could have left when the Cardassians left, but he decided, you know, he doesn't want to abandon the business opportunities uh, from staying in such a, you know, a, a, a location that is such a center of attention. And yeah, like you said, I think I think Deep Space Nine really does a great job of fleshing out a lot of these characters that were just sort of like one shot jokes 
you know, more or less, or just like one note devices in the next generation. And so we'll see much more, much more of Quark, you know, in the rest of the show. But we're, you know, we're his introduction is, you know, he's somebody who's sort of like, you know, the black market uh, capitalist, basically, uh, uh, on the on this, uh, on this station, and then Odo, who's the chief security officer, uh, he's a changeling, he's a shapeshifter. We haven't seen a changeling in previous uh, Star Trek uh, incarnations. We saw in Star Trek Six: The Undiscovered Country a shapeshifting uh, species called Cameloids, but we had never seen one like Odo before. Uh, and so we, yeah, uh, there's there's a lot of like in in the act one of the episode we just see like oh there's a whole new crew of like new people that aren't just like okay here's the ca- here's like the Kirk surrogate here's the chief medical here's the McCoy surrogate it's like it's not going to be as you know uh, by the numbers plug and play as like the transition from TOS to the next generation might be seen by some people. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it 7 days a week, and you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity, by supporting us, at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Another change I noticed is with the Federation, where in the next generation, um, and even in the original series, they very much came off like the UN, right? Whereas in this show, at least in the first episode, they seem more like America, right? Even like what you were saying with Kira, not seeing them as the liberators. Uh, it does seem like, no, no, in, in one way, they could seem like the UN and in other ways, they look a lot more like America. The funny thing about there, it is common to compare the Federation to the UN. Uh, but the prop, but the, but the main difference is that the Federation is functionally a state. Like, you know, it is, it has a president. You are, you are a, if, if, if you live on a Federation member world, you are a citizen of the United Federation of planets. Like it actually ha- like it, it is a governmental body that has like, power like it's not it's not like the un in that it's just sort of like a deliberative body that really nobody actually has to like listen to what they say it's like if you if you join the federation i mean it it is a little bit more nuanced in that there's like there's there is a uh you know there is an attempt to make sure that different member worlds have their sovereign you know uh independence like respected but there is like 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 the federation can act like the way that a nation state would act in you know modern world politics yeah the mechanics is probably very different from america per se but at least in this first episode and maybe going forward as far as power dynamic it seems to resemble uh, america more i mean also the federation has like you know a military unlike the un you know starfleet <laughs> is is the military of the united federation of planets it's not the earth military it's not the vulcan military it's not you know the andorian or tellarite it it is the federation military or you know exploratory wing whatever i i got to stop rehashing this argument every time it comes up but we'll just <laughs> for the sake for the sake of this show especially we can just say it's the military 
Okay. I mean, I'm sure as we go forward with more episodes, it'll get more fleshed out as we have examples from the show to bring up, right? I mean, also, also like, again, like I said, because like in universe, like post the first encounters with the Borg, we do see more of a militarization of Starfleet away from more of a scientific uh, exploratory function. Okay. Okay. So yeah, it does make sense on this show that, yeah, the Federation feels and acts a little bit more like America and that Starfleet acts more like a military. So it's like a post-Borg uh, Federation, kind of like a post-9-11 America, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, they're definitely like in the actual post-9-11 Star Trek shows, there are much more obvious 9-11 allegories. But like that is, it is, it is interesting like that, that you're right. That is kind of like a very, pre- it is kind of prescient in that way. I mean, you, we could also say that it's prescient. And then we can also say that like a lot of the things that we thought sort of were popping off after 9-11 were already happening, you know, in the in the cultural political zeitgeist or like, you know, we're already going on and shows like this that were sort of meant to be commentary, like are proof of that, that, that shit like that was already happening. Cause this was post first Gulf war at the very least. So then what is the official relationship between the Federation and the Bajoran provisional government? So it's, so basically it's like, you know, but Bajor is like a protectorate of, of the Federation. I mean, it's like the Federation has agreed to like respect Bajor's, you know, sovereign authority and not like try to actually exert anything, any sort of authority over Bajor, but it's like they will be like there to sort of protect against further Cardassian incursion or any other, you know, powers that might try to take advantage of the situation Uh, that, you know, that's, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, yes, you know, on the surface, it seems you know, like a good thing, but, you know, Kira is naturally suspicious and that invites the audience to be suspicious about, you know, what, what could be bad about that situation. Uh, Later on, we have this line about the wilderness and frontier by Dr. Bashir and about the natives, right? And then Kira pushes back. Basically, she doesn't say it, but implying he's a settler, like kind of an adventurous, right? I I think she kind of says it pretty, like, pretty (laughs) uh, explicitly. Yeah, no, I think this, that scene in particular, so it's like Bashir's first coming on the station, and he's talking to Kira, and he expresses, like, all of this excitement to be, like, doing in his words, real frontier medicine. <laughs> and and Kira's just like, hey, you know, we're like actual people and not just your science experiment. I wonder if it's a diss at Dr. Quinn, which might have been on at the same time. You know what? I didn't even think about that, but that is possibly like I I wouldn't discount that. I didn't even think about that. That's 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 a really good um that's that's a really good uh uh remark to make. Um, but, but yeah, you know, that's another scene that shows that like, Hey, you know, this is going to be a show that sort of interrogates some of our preconceived notions about like, you know, the Federation and its mission and what happens when you just try to like bring, you know, peace and, and freedom quote unquote to other civilized, you know, when you try to quote, explore strange new worlds. And I got a nerd question for you now. Uh, there was a scene in Quark's bar where they're gambling and it seems like that is what it is. It's a gambling establishment. So there seemed to be something that looked like money. It looked like gold bars. Yes. Gold pressed latinum. So there is gold. There is money in this world. Yes. Well, here's the thing. Other, so the Ferengi are not part of the United Federation of Planets. So the Ferengi, uh, you know, definitely deal in hard currency and, um, 
it's it's gold, but it's gold pressed latinum, and latinum is like this, you know, it's basically like you know the the real like valuable metal in in this period of time. So it's like that's like the hard cur- because especially you know on Deep Space Nine where you have all these different you know. Uh, cultures interacting with, you know, different economy and different money systems, like Latinum is sort of like the hard currency that allows for like, you know, exchange and, and stuff. So, so yeah, no, there is money. The Starfleet officers don't need to worry about money when dealing with Starfleet and Federation things. But, you know, when dealing with other cultures that don't have the, you know, the economy, economic, you know, and moral outlook of the Federation, you know, and, so yeah, there there is money on Deep Space Nine because again, Deep Space Nine is not just entirely a Federation station. It it is like this this like sort of uh, clashing point of the Federation with other other cultural and uh, and economic and political forces in uh, in this part of space. It does seem then like kind of an early, even though it takes place in space because it is kind of a rebuilding period. It seems like market economies, right, from like the past, right, where when you have two different cultures come together, they create this kind of market economy. I I think somebody once described Deep Space Nine as Casablanca in space. And I think that might that might be a good way, a good (laughs) metaphor. I didn't uh, come up with that. That wasn't from you reading my notes. (laughs) Oh, did you? Did you write that down in your notes? I mean, I've I've read it elsewhere. So, so I, I if you came up with oh, that's interesting. So you came up with that comparison all on your own. Well, there's a there's a scene later on that is like a direct a direct reference to Casablanca. Okay. Well, not even like a direct, but it does look like an homage to Casablanca. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, that that definitely was a, a lot of people were aware of of uh of and were drawing those comparisons like even when the show was on TV. Cuz it has that kind of a North African vibe, you know, you and then you in Casablanca, right? You had the Nazis, the the fascists there who were colonizing Let's table this conversation for now because in episode two, A Man Alone, that's where there's a direct reference to Casablanca. At least in my opinion, it looks like an homage. So we'll get into that. But um, and then you mentioned Odo, and then we meet another character named Dax. Can you tell us a little bit about Dax and what are trills? So so trills are a species that was introduced in the next generation. Um, previously. They are uh, a symbiotic species where there's there's trill humanoids and then like there are two different sort of subspecies of trill there's the trill humanoids and the trill symbionts and the symbionts uh are i don't know if they're like immortal or they're just very long-lived because basically like a symbiont is like gets implanted in a humanoid host and uh, with the death of a of a, of one host, it leads to getting implanted in a new host, and the symbiont carries the memories and you know uh, like legacy of all of its previous hosts. So we see uh, the science officer on Deep Space Nine is Jadzia Dax, um, and Trill always have a first name, and then the their surname, for lack of a better term, is the name of the symbiont. So we see that. Jadzia receives the Dax symbiont from the previous host, Curzon, who was a friend of Benjamin Sisko during his life, sort of a friend and mentor. Is this all consensual, like this passing of the symbiont? Yeah, no, the the Trill, uh, like, Trill culture has, like, all of these different rituals for, like, picking who is fit to be a host 
and uh, what symbiont they are fit to be a host for. And like, there's all these different uh, interviews and tests. And in future episodes, we'll, it, there is an episode of the first season where uh, Dax sort of reveals, because, uh, you know, Jadzia is like young, she's in her 20s. And she talks about how like, she worked so hard to, you know, and, and to be picked as a, as a, um, uh, uh, a host and how she was excited to get the Dax symbiote in particular. And, uh, but what's interesting about this character is that I, uh, when people talk about like trans representation in science fiction, a lot of people will, um, uh, talk about, uh, the character of Jadzia Dax and the Trill in general, because, you know, we see the Dax symbiote transitioning from the body of an old man to a young woman and often and be, and Dax will talk about having lived life multiple times as both women and men. And so I do think that it's valid how like this was like one of those, it it is like very easy to uh, project interpretations of like the transgender experience. And it is like easier to do that with this and a lot of other previous sort of uh, uh, sci-fi stories. I think some people use it to discount the actual significance of their finally being trans and non-binary characters on Star Trek Discovery, because it is one thing to have like actual explicit representation and another thing to just have wink nudge subtextual explanation. And while here with the trill, the wink and the nudge are very loud and obvious, it's still wink nudge. But that being said, you know, yes, like definitely there's, there's a lot of interesting things that one of the interesting things about Dax is that his, uh, uh, is that Jadzia's relationship to Cisco is going to be as with Cisco very much accepts Dax, like having been friends with Curzon, the previous host and being aware of how trills work, you know, is very much willing to accept that Curzon is there in one way or another and often teasingly re- re- like refers to Jadzia as old man. But also there's going, you know, has to grapple with the fact that like, you know, Jadzia is a younger, um, a younger woman, a, a, you know, a lower ranked officer under his command. And, and so there's times where like she will offer like, advice and and counsel but then like there's there's like cisco has to balance you know how to take that but again this is like one of those things this is another species you know just like the bajorans the cardassians and the ferengi that we that like get sort of plant used as like a a premise of the week in tng but now we get to explore much more fully and subsequent uh star trek incarnations definitely benefit all of all of the subsequent depictions of all of these species uh, in other Star Trek works, like definitely owe like so much and owe a lot to what Deep Space Nine does to specifically flesh these characters out and these species out. Yeah, I don't want to read too much into like what you were saying into what Dax represents. It, let's just say with Dax and even with Odo, they represent new elements in the Star Trek canon, and and uh, then they're able to ask different questions or they bring new things to the show like with odo i think there's even a line where he explicitly says that he has been passing right this idea of passing so i think both of them in different ways raise questions about identity and gender 
And in the first episode, they kind of get into it a little bit in just introducing their characters, but I'm sure this is something that the show and the series explores more as they go on. And I'm sure if it was remade again, they would even go even further than they did when they made it back then. Well, I mean, like I said, I mean, well, with with Discovery, you can see like now they're like starting to just like be able to explicitly say some of the things with some of their characters that were being, like I said, wink nudged. You know, there is a a non-binary character who explicitly like says, you know, refer to me with they them pronouns. And like when there's a there's a gay couple that actually uses the word gay, it's like they don't have to dance around things the way that, you know, I guess previous showrunners thought that Star Trek had to. But okay. Originally, the uh, the appeal to, of de- of the location of Bajor and Deep Space Nine is just that uh, you know new world that could potentially join the Federation, or you know just all these. It's you know it's in the middle of a lot of contentious uh, borders of 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 you know uh, of different. Uh, uh, stellar entities with contentious relations, but then there is this discovery with Cisco's arrival that there is a wormhole right next to B- Bajor that is potent. That is the first recorded instance of a stable wormhole, as in like a, a wormhole that is like a stable tunnel in space that can be used back and forth, and it goes from. The Alpha Quadrant, which is where this the, is where in in Star Trek stellar cartography, like none of this isn't like terms like Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta Quadrant aren't really used by like NASA or anything. But for the sake of Star Trek, the the galaxy is divided into four quadrants and uh, the Federation takes up mostly the Alpha Quadrant with just a, the Federation is in the Alpha Quadrant. Uh, the Klingon Empire sort of stretches like right across the border into part of the Beta Quadrant, and like most of what happens in the Next Generation and TOS happens just within the Alpha Quadrant, and so the and then Voyager takes place mostly in the Delta Quadrant. But the Bajoran wormhole goes from the Alpha Quadrant to uh, diagonally across to the Gamma Quadrant, so a stable wormhole that ships that don't even like small ships that don't even need uh uh warp cores to be able to traverse to a the opposite end of the galaxy is obviously you know very valuable for trade and uh and commerce and and everything and so like once that's discovered the cardassians come back and basically say uh we want to uh we you know we want this uh when going through the cisco goes through the wormhole just to figure out what it's like. And he's actually visited by these aliens that are known to the Bajorans as the prophets. Uh, and it's never exp- there. There, This is actually another thing that really sets off uh, sets off deep space nine as being a little bit different from previous treks in that there's a little bit more, credence i will not create um i want to say a little bit more respect get paid to the idea of there being like a mystical uh that's beyond scientific explanation and some might say that sort of goes against the very humanist scientific original vision of star trek you know and that like you know in the original series it's very much shown that like humanity is you know beyond religion and uh 
and that a lot there are a lot of episodes where it's like an alien pretends to be a god and then they're like haha you're just an alien with a machine and it's like can be seen as like very like anti-religion but here throughout the whole show throughout all seven seasons of the show the nature of the prophets um is never fully explained and they're sort of left a little bit mystical and and i think that is you know we we know that they are like they're not the same species as the Bajorans in the way that we understand them. We know that they are non-corporeal because they always interact with Cisco calling him like a corporeal being. We know that we, um, that they don't experience time linearly. Uh, and then we know that the Bajorans are aware of them and, and worship them as like supreme beings of a sense. And they have the ability to like read, um, uh, you know, the future and the past and whatever. And I think, uh, they say that they say that that this guy Cisco is going to be the emissary of uh, their emissary uh, basically to the corporeal world. And the way that they do that, they communicate to Cisco by making him reenact his own memories. I think it, we forgot to mention that that Picard, the Enterprise D is actually like. Uh, has come to deep space nine to sort of help with setting up, uh, the Starfleet moving in and Picard, uh, briefs, um, Cisco on, you know, the, his responsibilities as a commander of the station. But Cisco is actually like not super enthusiastic about getting the job. And he's actually considering possibly quitting Starfleet and, uh, and, uh, or requesting a transfer or something like, like he actually, number one, He's not happy to see Picard, which is, again, like, you know, uh, different for us as the audience because, you know, we know Picard is Picard, but Cisco only knows uh, Picard is basically the dude who killed his wife. And so he's not happy about having to deal with Picard. We see we see a, some we see a Starfleet guy like, you know, not acting with like deference and respect to Picard, which is new for us. Uh, and then. So then we see the discovery of the wormhole and then Cisco goes into the wormhole is visited by these aliens who like make basically like they, the way they try to figure out these corporeal beings is like they go into their minds and look through their memories and they appear to them in the shape of like people that, uh, that have that appeared in those memories. So they're like, like they go through, um, like uh, memories of uh, his love of baseball, again, like throwing that American-centric nature uh, into uh, our protagonist. And, and they're like, oh, these, you know, the, the, these beings, they haven't encountered humans before. So they're just like, oh, baseball game, these, hu these humans are adversarial. And, uh, um, but then they keep bringing up the, the memory of, of jennifer of of cisco's wife dying on the saratoga of him having to leave her behind and and leave the ship and and they keep saying he lives here referring to cisco cisco is like what do you mean like that you live here and uh that i live here uh you know i live on a i live on a station and then he eventually gets the point that like they're real like he realizes that he is caught in the memory of jennifer's death and that he lives he does live there psychologically and that he has to move to be able to move on with his life he has to be able to let go of that and 
it almost like the this episode like tricks you into realizing what you've watched even though it's like a show like the whole ep- the whole two-parter is about like all these different political uh you know struggles and and uh these different like you know contentious you know uh 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 borders and and changes of regime and military conflicts it's like it sneaks in this emotional through line where the whole episode is really about like this dude learning to move on with his life after the trauma of like his his wife dying because the episode ends with him like they're able to secure the wormhole you know and convince the uh you know i guess it's like what is like the actual like plot of the episode is like feels like uh, uh, not as significant in me mentally because I don't even remember a lot of like the very specific details, but it's like they go into the wormhole and like, because they were able to make it out uh, safely, it's like the Cardassians like are convinced to, uh, you know, let the Federation have control of it or something. Well, going back to your mysterious, uh, you know, profits, it never makes explicit the deal that they made that, oh, you're our emissary or that we give you permission to use this wormhole. I mean, that's what it seems like at the end. But uh, when you were explaining that they're mysterious beings and that the show kind of doesn't over explain that, then that really explains how the show ended where it didn't like, you know, hit you over the head. Like a lot of the next generation episodes or a lot of TV does where it's like, this is exactly what happened. You see that they came to a resolution, but you have to read it in the the ending of the episode instead of like being having to you know have your hand held and be explicitly told because they they were able to tell you this through an emotional story arc i think you were talking about that emotional arc yeah no this this like definitely it it sets up what are going to be some of the longer term plot threads of the show not just like what is this episode you know what is the story of this episode but it's like what are the things that we're going to like learn about as we continue to follow these characters? We're going to learn like what, who are the prophets? What does this, like who's on the other side of the wormhole? Like these are, there are questions that are specifically set up. So the wormhole is like something that was set up in this episode for the rest of the series then. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, there's a reason why the opening uh, titles like very pointedly like shows a a ship flying into the wormhole because the wormhole becomes like a very the wormhole and the prophets you know are very central to a lot of the overall conflict of this show Mm. even with the title emissary until you explained it that he had become the emissary i didn't i thought he meant emissary as in like you know the federation being an emissary for the the division government you know it, it it it's it's a good title because it does have you know those multiple meanings. But yeah, no, the, it it what the, yeah there there is again like let's co- uh, let's compare this to like another like the pilot episode of the Next Generation, which was Encounter at Farpoint. Like the 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 story of that is just like okay, we have a new Enterprise on its first mission, and this mission is to figure out what the hell is going on at Farpoint Station. And at the end of that episode. We solve the mystery of Farpoint Station. We know that it's like built on top of like what some kind of space jellyfish, and and now <laughs> the, the, the jellyfish is is fine and is allowed to set free, be set free, and like we know, like that's all solved, and it's just like all we have, uh, you know, 
going on next is just like, okay, what's going to be the next mission of the enterprise? But it's like, there aren't, it doesn't really plant very many like long-term questions about like, you know, I mean, you could be like, okay, what's the deal with Wesley Crusher and, and how he's going to, you know, relate to Picard because he's his dead dad's friend. But like with this show, it's like, we definitely lay a lot of groundwork for overarching stories that we will want to see more of. That whole time that Cisco spent in the wormhole, that was like my favorite part of this episode because it also like, not only did it have this emotional payoff from what we saw in the beginning, but also like it raised these philosophical questions, which some of it I, I'm sure were in, intentional from the writer's perspective as far as like sci-fi and you know these ideas of time. But there was also this kind of like concept of time from a decolonial aspect because they were talking about time as, you know, just trying to understand this concept of linear time, which you mentioned earlier about they don't follow that. But that was interesting to me because Western conceptions of time had to be taught to the world so that the world could be civilized like the West, like uh, England at the time. But here, their idea of linear time, or let's say GMT or, or uh, Western time is kind of backwards and a primitive way to view the world. So it's almost like the way that a lot of the indigenous world viewed time as not linear, but more contextual, right? It, it seems more correct, right? Yeah. I, I, I even neglected to mention that before Cisco goes into the wormhole, he, uh, he has a meeting with Kai Opaka, who's sort of like the supreme religious figure of the Bajoran people who like notices that he has like an incredible, uh, strong pa or like, you know, life energy. And so we, there is upfront, we like are introduced to the Bajorans as being like a very different culture and, uh, from a different culture from the Federation, you know, Federation as surrogate for, you know, Euro-American culture, like you're saying and more religious and more spiritual and, but also, but legitimate you know, in that like, like Cisco and the rest of the crew are like going to learn and respect a lot of different aspects of Bajoran culture and philosophy that are going to have bearing on like the plot of future episodes. And, and like, you know, Kira is never like, you know, Kira is going to be very much involved. We're going, and, and the audience is going to be very much involved in the, uh, in what, role religion plays in the politics of Bajor. Um, like Kai Opaka, uh, the position of Kai is going to be uh, very focal to a lot of plots. So uh, I think um, that, yeah, there, there, this is another one of the ways where it's like, again, because the Bajorans are going to like be like uh, a, a, a constant on this show and not just, we'll talk about them like in the C plot of, of an episode once in a while. It's like, we're, Th this show, you know, like I think you've really caught, like really does like try to uh, throw into starker relief how certain things are very much cultural concepts. And, and, and yeah, that like pers perspectives on even things like time can be different, you know, from species to species. I mean, even going back to what you just brought up, reminded me of how Cisco was trying to relate to that idea of Pog and with, uh, what was the character's name? Kai? What? Kai, Kai Opaka? 
uh, yeah, Kai Opaka, in, in that relationship, he was trying to figure out and understand this new culture. And then once again, with the prophets, trying to understand their idea of time and the way they experience the world. And he was talking about his experiences, but at the same time, it's bi-directional. So he's trying to understand them. And it very much reminded me because it's like he had so many set defaults of trying to internally decolonize where you're just trying to drop your original ideas and accept this different way of thinking about things, this different standpoint, right? Yeah. And it, it, again, this, this story does such a great job of like sneaking in, like a lot of things are happening in this episode at once, but they all then sort of come together as being very consistent about not only is Cisco sort of coming into a situation where like everything's in uh, upheaval, everything's like, you know, trying to find like, you know, figure itself out in outside and its external consequences, but like his life is very much sort of in an upheaval and sort of unstuck because he's trying to like figure out what he, what his life means, you know, after his wife dies and, and like realizing the significance that he has, uh, personally to, uh, the fate of this world, you know, basically, and the fate of these creatures. And then like this, uh, possibility for new relationships he can form with this new family on deep space nine it all sort of like coalesces into like trying to find uh the hope to continue on even after like everything changes i mean i think that's a good way to wrap up this episode yeah everything everything changes and everything is going to keep changing on this show perfect that's that's emissary and uh so if you liked uh, this episode and you haven't listened to other uh, shows on the Southpaw uh, Podcast Network, uh, definitely check out the other shows. We've got uh, Southpaw Classic. I think that's what we should call it at this point, like a Coca-Cola <laughs> Classic. We've got, we've got Southpaw, which is specifically about uh, mixed martial arts and combat sports. And a subseries of that is Fight Study, where we talk about, uh, well, where Sam and his guests talk specifically about um, recent uh event like specific events and matches uh and then southpaw proper does a lot more like broad sort of political education stuff then we have uh pride never die which is uh specifically from a uh, lgbtq uh perspective on on uh, mixed martial arts and then we also have uh working stiff which is pro wrestling oriented and uh what are, do, uh, is that all the sh current shows we have going on on the southpaw network sam and this is the newest show, which I think we've been talking about and winking at for months now, but we're finally getting it in the can. <laughs> so listen to this show. You can subscribe to uh, Southpaw on Patreon. If you go to patreon.com, I believe it's patreon.com slash southpawpod. Uh, kick in, you know, a few a few bucks, like for the price of a cup of coffee. You can help a uh, volunteer uh, lefty uh, podcast network keep making uh, content that uh, justifies nerds being able to talk about the shit they're nerdy about. Uh, so all of those plugs out of the way, the uh, next episode will be about season one, episode two, A Man Alone. Uh, just as a general note, we will be going uh, in order of the episodes as they're available on Netflix, uh, just because Sam doesn't have Paramount Plus. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, so just in case you're wondering why pod uh, episodes appear in a certain order, that's why. But uh, I hope you enjoyed our first outing of Southpaw Deep Space Nine, and I hope you uh, return uh, again next time for another trip through the wormhole. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know that music that you were doing earlier where you were actually like bum, banana, banana. well we should do the deep space not this Bum, 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 bum.